Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Self Reg Show. I'm Susan Hopkins here with Stuart Shanker, and we're so excited uh, for our next episode of our podcast. Be sure to share this uh, in every place that you can, high and low. We want to. We're trying to reach as many people as we can. So we welcome your comments, your questions. Uh, just keep them coming because it really is helping us find our path forward into what's the most helpful for all of you. So I uh, run the organization, uh, the Merit Center, which is Stuart Shanker's. He's the vision, visionary founder, and uh, we're really dreaming <laughs> of, of healing. And, you know, sometimes we joke about saving the world. Sometimes it's thinking about healing the world. But it's really about finding ways to bring the science uh, forward but also figuring out how to apply, how we apply this suffering knowledge uh, to change what's happening in our schools, early childhood centers, in our homes, in our families. I mean, you name it. Uh, and it really is, it's not a program. You've got to remember that it is absolutely not a program. It's, it is, I mean, it, it is five steps, but it's also a framework for thinking. It's a way of beginning to uh, get in touch with our our own brain body states and, and to strengthen our relationships and, and just so much more. And I wanted to start today because last time we, uh, we ended, we did, uh, uh, which you can see there's links here to go back and we looked at what stress is. If you have not seen that podcast, go back and watch that one uh, because it's really important to remember we're, we're talking about the science understanding of stress and, and the new science there's, you know, there's lots of understandings out there, but they're they're evolving at a, a breakneck pace, which is what Stuart considers his job. He's trying to keep up with all of that, make sense of it, and uh, and and bring it to the rest of us. And then last time we talked about the five domains, and so go back and have a check of that as well. We ended by saying, okay, the next thing we should be talking about is the interbrain. So that's what today's topic is about. Uh, and I just want to start with a story before I throw it over to you, Stuart Shanker. But actually, how are you this morning? I should have probably asked that. How are you? <laughs> good, good morning, Susan. I'm pretty good. <laughs> good, good. We're, we're here all under a little bit of snow. Uh, Adam, who is producing, is in Nova Scotia, and he has a power outage and uh, <laughs> is in a public restaurant. Stuart's upstairs because it's affecting his internet. Uh, and I'm about an hour's drive away from him as well. And there's snow on the ground here too. So I have this really interesting story that makes me think about the interbrain. And for those of you saying, what is the interbrain? Stuart's going to take you there. It, it connects to relationships. Absolutely. Which is something we've been talking about for a very long time. But it, it really is so much more. Uh, and it, it, it adds the science to what we actually mean when we say, you know, relationships are, are, are the, the path forward. And so I have been, as, as Stuart knows, and some of you may know, I, I have a, a, a smartwatch and a, 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 I used to have a Fitbit. It's, it's an Apple one now, and I've had it for a few years. I've used it a bit. I, but in the last three months or so, I've been having, I've actually been having fun with it <laughs> as I'm trying to walk my talk on, uh, on restoration, on getting back into balance and, uh, in feeling a little bit better. I've been pushing through. I always do, but you know, suffering will teach us <laughs> at what cost. And it's sort of been a bit of an at what cost in the last uh, little bit. So I, I've just been using my, my smartwatch to sort of guide. I have fun. I look at it when I take my little, my little runs or, you know, I, I'm learn. I, it's how I learn my sleep is, uh, 
is worse than I thought. And, you know, I look at things like heart rate and all sorts of things. So I found something interesting that happened yesterday and uh, it was a bit of a surprise for me. So Stuart, yesterday I was doing a, the third in five workshops, live workshops of, of an offering called uh, pressure cooker, cooker schools. So we'll probably run it again at another time. And I'm sure the link to that can be provided to you. Uh, but it's really interesting. It's alive. We look at a little bit uh, of, of content, but mostly it's trying to apply it, you know, uh, with it. There's a group of about 50 people or so that are participating. And so, you know, when I think about looking at my heart rate over the day, because that's what I've been watching, you uh, know, and I'm watching heart rate variability and different kinds of things. And, and I know it's imperfect, but it's still interesting to kind of think about. And I totally expected uh, when I looked at that, the, uh, at the data on it last night, I thought, um, you know, it was way up in the morning when I did a workout. So that's that that you kind of expect. And then I had a pretty good heart rate all day long. And I expected to find my heart rate elevated during this webinar, because that would be normal, right? And I did find that, but I found something even more surprising. So here's what happened. I'm supposed to do this third workshop. It starts at 3.30 my time and goes 3.30 to 5 p.m. And I'm online and I'm getting, you know, I'm getting ready to go. And I always get a little bit revved up ahead of time, which is uh, as good as long as I can keep it in, in balance, which you've helped me with a lot over the years, Stuart. But but something unexpected happened. Sienna, my daughter, walked through the door at 3.15, so 15 minutes early. And the reason that's unexpected is because it means she took the bus yesterday. The weather was horrible. But she ought, she doesn't take the bus after school. Uh, actually, hasn't. In, I can't remember the last time she did because she hangs out with her friends. And, you know, she's in that, that age and it's the friend sort of time. And so, uh, you know, it was really unexpected to find her walk through the door. And she walks through in a huff, okay? So now it's like three, you know, just after 3.20. And she asks me, you know, can uh, this friend of hers come over right away? And then I'm supposed to drive him home. And I'm like, I'm, <laughs> my answer is no. And I'm actually reasonably calm about it. But we had, like, we had last night all planned out. So there was all these agreements. Anyway, it, it's like, she's not very nice to me, right? She's kind of stormy. She was great last night. She came back last night and said, I'm really sorry, mom, but this is all happening like six minutes before I go online. <laughs> right. And so it was just really interesting when I looked at, at and I, I go on, I do my thing. I gave Liz who was online with me a heads up that this had happened. I had my headphones on just, you know, cause now I'm having to give this talk knowing that there's this little bit of tension. It wasn't dramatic, but it, it wasn't a very nice way to start. But when I looked at my, at the data last night for my heart rate, I was really shocked. As you can imagine, it wasn't through the roof when she was there. So that tells you I was, it was just at that next layer up of, it was about a hundred. Okay. So instead of, for me, normal is sort of 67, 70, something like that. So it was, it, it did, it did go over a hundred, but just 101 or something like that, which isn't huge for me. It wasn't like ah, full out, but it started at 322, which, which you would expect. But here was the surprise for me. It sort of sustained at that rate through my talk. But in the last half an hour of my talk, it went back down to, to almost like a baseline for me, like way lower. Total surprise because I would have expected it to sustain right up until the end of my talk and have taken some time afterwards to come back down. And, you know, then it got fascinated. I looked at the other spikes during the day and I'm like, 
And it wasn't always where I expected to be. Now, the other piece to add to you is the last half an hour of the talk last night um, was people working in groups and coming back. And my PowerPoint was down. We're dialoguing. It's a group of about 50. Some are on chat. There's different people, different places in the world. And there's conversations going. So I'm intense. I'm into this conversation. But my heart rate was 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 way lower than it would have been if this had been like 10 years ago. So fascinating. I have no idea where you want to go with that story because uh, we also have to tell people what the interbrain even is. Uh, but what do you think of that? Well, it's a great story. Maybe you should explain why the heart rate goes up and why the heart rate comes down. Well, you know, I always love when Stuart uh, gets me to do the science. He's the science guy. But it just, you know, for everybody out there, we have lots of ways you can learn about this. But it just makes perfect sense when we begin to honor and recognize that our body responds with this cascade of of changes that happen like that. And, you know, everybody's so focused on the brain, but it's not just the brain, it's the whole body. It's the nervous system that connect, you know, like the brain is part of that, that connects it. And it's always, you know, it, it's operating beneath our awareness. It's a, like a readiness. It's predicting and trying to see what it is we might need for a certain kind of situation. Right. So if I'm, you know, it's normal, the heart rate is out, goes up when I'm going for a run because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's also pumping all of that, but it's also when I get in a fight with my neighbor, which I don't do, I love my neighbor, <laughs> right? But it would be elevated. And so it's a sign of, of sympathetic activation, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's also a sign that there's a whole bunch of shifts that have happened in my brain and body. It's like a readiness state. Uh, it's not a good place to be all the time, right? You know, that your heart's meant to go up and down and all over it. When we're stuck up there, um, you know, that that can be a real problem. Um, but when it comes down, it tells you that, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm feeling safe, I'm in balance, I'm in, um, you know, able to think and, and lit, like, it's really important on the, these, these sessions to be able to listen, take in, make sense. Also, you know, uh, weave things in. So I'm able to be really fully present when when it's down, when it's elevated. Uh, you know, it wasn't my great greatest moment with Sienna. Like, that's the truth. She walked in, I was like, <laughs> oh, you know, you don't your best self in that kind of state. But, you know, my brain's not thinking that through. It's just reacting, right? So I don't know if I've done any justice. to That's that. pretty good. <laughs> so um, what does it all mean? <laughs> well, um, let me see if we can tie all this in, like, uh, with the interbrain. Um, which is kind of a weird idea if you think about it. Uh, so let me tell you to begin with um, when and why I first had the idea. Uh, it was back in the early 1990s, and I loved everything that Stephen Jay Gould wrote, and I bought his new book, um, which I believe was called Essays After Darwin, collection of articles that he wrote. And... Uh, he has this, um, one of the essays is called something like um, uh, The Child is the Father to the Man, or uh, I can't remember the title now. But anyways, in it, he, he suggests that human babies, newborns, are actually still a fetus. They are what he calls a fetus outside the womb. And he gives he gave a citation for this, um, and 
so I went back and I read the original papers by a Dutch physiologist called De Groot. And it's a really, really interesting argument. And the idea is that uh, I won't go into the full theory here because we're interested in the interbrain, but the idea is basically that most of our, a baby's brain growth occurs after the moment of birth. It occurs postnatally. About five, six, five, six of a baby's brain growth occurs after birth. And there are lots of reasons that have been given for that. But what intrigued me was, so what, what Gould was talking about was the evolutionary argument uh, and why neuroanatomy uh, and anatomy um, uh, make, a, you know, make a convincing case for seeing a newborn as still a fetus for around four months or four to six months. But I decided to uh, play around with this a little bit because I thought, well, if you want to look at a baby, a newborn as a still a fetus, totally harm, totally incapable of uh, caring for itself, um, you know, needing that close uh, caregiving in order to survive. But if you want to be literal about it, then something has to take the place of the umbilical cord. It's as simple as that. So that's um, what I started thinking about and started reading. Um, what replaces the umbilical cord? And at, around this time, uh, Alan Shore wrote uh, um, what for anybody in this field was a sort of you know, it was a groundbreaking book called Affect Regulation in the Origin of Self. And Shore um, summarized all of the research that explains what I was looking for, what takes the place of, of the umbilical cord. Um, otherwise, you, otherwise, if you talk about the baby as a fetus, you're just, it's just metaphor, right? You're just saying, well, you know, it's really helpless. So it's still fetal in some respects. But Gould was arguing that it really is still a fetus. And in fact, a number of other people picked up on this. Uh, Dean Falk picked up on it. Uh, and it became, um, in, in anthropology and primatology, it became a really hot topic. So around this time, I came across the work of an English psychologist called Digby Tantum. And he was working on the same topic. And he was the one who came up with this idea of, with this name, this term, the interbrain. So, uh, so um, from that point on, I started to use Digby's term um, and uh, looking at um, really the mechanics of this, if what in simplest terms, what Digby was saying was that there's a sort of wireless brain-to-brain -brain hookup between the caregiver and the baby that uh, 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 he calls it, it's like a Bluetooth connection. So again, you know, this is all metaphor. It's like a Bluetooth. It's like a this. So what I wanted to know was, okay, can you actually explain this in neuroscientific terms? 
And that's exactly what Alan Shore was doing. And what Shore wrote about was um, something called limbic resonance. And what that means is that um, when certain neurons be, are activated uh, in, say, the baby, the same neurons are activated in the caregiver. Now, that's fascinating. Um, it goes a little bit further. What these neurons do is, so you've got neurons in the baby's limbic system because they really haven't got much of a prefrontal cortex at this point. So it's primarily a limbic system. And so certain neurons begin to, uh, are activated either in the baby's limbic system or below that. Uh, in uh, We won't go into the technical terms here, but below there are two systems or three systems actually below the limbic system. Uh, if, if you want to look it up, it's diencephalon, midbrain, and brainstem. And the idea was that when these neurons are activated in these systems in the baby's brain, the same neurons start to, 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 to um, buzz around in mommy's brain or daddy's brain. Uh, and... I can't remember if this, I really can't remember if I was the one that came up with this or if I read it, but it's like a tuning fork. Um, and so if you think about, you know, if if I ping a tuning fork at one end of the room, the sound waves travel and the other tuning form, fork vibrates on the same frequency. And that's what's going on in the two brains. I'll say one more thing and then I'll pause and let Susan, um, give me one last point, Susan. So these neurons in, let's say, uh, a specific system, like the periaqueductal gray, a tiny little system in the baby's brain, starts to, um, starts to, these neurons are activated, and the same neurons begin to activate in the caregiver's brain, uh, and say, um, a, a really great example is they are pain neurons. So there are pain neurons in the periaqueductal gray. And if the baby is feeling a bit of pain and that pain could be caused by too much intensity of a stimulus, um, the caregiver's pain neurons begin to vibrate too. And these vibrating neurons produce a neurochemical. And so what Shore was reporting was not only are we seeing like everybody has heard in recent years about mirror neurons. So not only are we seeing the neurons mirroring each other, but these neurons produce neurochemicals. And the neurochemicals they produce may be exactly what Susan just described. They could be those neurochemicals, which are called catecholamines, that enable us, that put us in a state of readiness. That So something like adrenaline, something like epinephrine and norepinephrine, which are also activated, by the way, by pain. So what Shore was reporting, and I'm trying to make sense of all this for what Susan and I now do, 
what Shore was reporting was not only are we seeing a sort of mechanical resonance to to uh, to um, uh, sets of neurons vibrating on the same frequency, but these neurons are producing the same neurochemicals. So what we see is neurochemical synchrony. So to translate this into English, so the primary caregiver doesn't just see that the baby's in pain, the primary caregiver feels that pain. Okay, so now I'll pause. <laughs> okay, so I, I, I always get new things when I listen to you. Those of you that love this kind of science and want to know <laughs> about baby's brain or even that, that idea of the fetus outside the womb, uh, Foundations One, our, our, our first course in our Foundations program is about uh, the brain, stress, and it's the, we call it the biological domain. So it's a great course if you love more science and more details. So I just want to stop for one second. I have a question because this is something that I used to get asked a lot. You know, we talk, we know that that the sort of language of the the decade of the brain in the '90s, when we began to have the uh, the technology to see beyond the black box and, and and begin to understand further, is part of what's opened. Well, it's a huge piece of what's opened up all kinds of new research and understandings. But there's a danger uh, with this idea of 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 uh, that used to hear a lot. So the danger of attributing certain things um, because certain parts of the brain brain lit up. But I think you're saying something different today. So let me give you an example. I, a psychologist once uh, stopped a, a you know, kind of interrupted a uh, uh, a talk that I this is years ago, and uh, it was around a statement that that I was sharing about brain something about different parts of the brain lighting up, which, which we're, we're finding out through science. It's not just an idea or a metaphor. Uh, and you know, the question was something to the effect of, well, how do you know, just because that part of the brain lit up that whatever, whatever was happening, um, uh, you know, so let's just say, because we can see, you know, the part of the brain that's lit up for language or the part of the brain, um, that is, is, uh, lit up that, that, is is when we form relationships or whatever how do you act or certain parts of the brain that are connected to emotion like it's all evolving so fast and his point was there's a lot of brain myths out there the brain and understanding it is great but let's not go say just because we know this we we know what it means but you're saying something a little bit different here so you can probably clarify what i'm trying the point i'm trying to make when you hear this but you're saying that we can actually see mom's brain and an infant's brain or grandma's brain and infant's brain, you know, there's this, there's this resonance. There's these two parts of the brain are lighting up. It looks the same on both uh, and on both. And we can, we can see and measure that there are actual neuro neurochemicals released because of that. Is that what you're saying? Yes. <laughs> it's not <Yes>. small. <laughs> it yes. Is, yeah. Yes. But something more. So keep going. So I think it's really important, even if you, like I might have uh, just butchered that, that attempt to explain it, uh, but I think it's important for, for some people that get really sort of paused and hesitant on, on you know, on using the brain science. Uh, oh, it, it, you know, you, it is good to have a healthy skepticism and a good to have an open, you know, around all of these things. 
but realizing this is really pointing our way uh, to deeper under to deeper understanding. So I just I, I just think that's really really important. Um, so I have a question for you. Uh, I should uh, let me respond to that first. And okay, then we'll sure. The so Susan's absolutely right. Um, so we'll take as an example uh, when I was in grad school, it was just accepted or assumed that language is um, localized, which is the term that was used, in the left perisylvan region. And the idea here is that little part of the brain lights up when you're speaking language. Uh, Susan sent me an article about a month ago where the newest research shows us that the whole brain is involved in language, all of the parts. Um, and so her point here is um, uh, twofold. One, that we don't jump to, you know, conclusions that, um, that uh, you know, assuming that brain science or neuroscience is, is far more precise uh, than, uh, you know, we used to think. Maybe we'll find out there's a lot more going on. But the second point, um, and we'll see if her next question relates to this, is the so what. Um, and it's the so what that concerns us uh, in South Rig. Um, So let's say that it's true. Let's say that there is this kind of um, neural, neuronal, and neurochemical resonance. Let's say that there is what Shore called this synchrony, and that that that's what the interbrain's all about. It's about this uh, neural or neuronal and neurochemical synchrony. So what? Um, and that's uh, that's where we're going today. It's the so what that we're concerned with. Okay, next question. And I just want to tell people if you're really interested in that synchrony idea. Stuart does a fabulous job of unpacking that. There's a module in the early childhood course where he talks about like literally imagining those tuning forks, one on one side of the room and one on yes, the I other. That we did. Yep. Yeah. Oh, it's where you unpack all the science and it's fabulous okay. because you begin to think, okay, yeah. you know, if I think about myself yesterday <laughs> when my daughter walked in the door and I wasn't, I wasn't expecting it. She, I was happy to see her. That was, that didn't throw me off that much. It was the, how she started. Right. So there was no, <laughs> there was no synchrony in that, in that, in, in between the two of us. So it really is, uh, I mean, this points us to one of the house. The interbrain for me is, is, you know, when, when one of, when, when people talk about relationships. So I, I love the talk of relationships are the base and they are, what do we even mean by that? Right. And we, we, you've got relationships with anybody. It's a relational. If, if you're in an early childhood center and you've got 17 kids in there, there is a relational piece to that no matter what. Healthy growth promoting relationships mean that we need to do this syncing up some of the time, you know, uh, uh, and, and how do we actually get there and how do we notice like what it, even what it kind of feels like within ourselves. Like to me, it is one of the, one of the keys and one of the, one of the absolute paths forward. So my next question for you is, all right, so you're talking about infants. I started by talking about a mom and it, and it, you know, and my, and my teenager <laughs> and feeling that kind of disconnect and, and how it hit, you know, yesterday, what is, when we think about the interbrain, what does it mean for any of us across the lifespan, any of our relationships, any of our work, 
uh, how can we begin to think about how using this this science, this sort of the metaphor, but also the science, uh, to think about about what our priorities should be? Okay, so we, we we do have actually a couple of steps that we have to go through in order to answer that question. Okay, so step number one, uh, what we're talking about is that the caregiver has a sensation and the sensation mirrors the sensations that the baby has. So, you know, we did the, we, you know, uh, let's make this really simple. If the baby, um, if the baby is angry, a baby has a very primitive anger system called rage. The caregiver, their rage neurons begin to uh, vibrate as well. And so they have a rage. There are certain sensations that accompany rage or accompany happiness or accompany fear, different kinds of sensations. And we explain all these in different webinars. So infants okay. feel rage? Yeah, the rage system is operating. Um, if you want to see rage in a baby, all you have to do is hold their arms to their side, not let go. And that triggers the oh. rage, <laughs> that triggers a rage response in a baby, telling us just how young an age this begins to operate. So that I just want to stay on that for one second, because that speaks to the, the challenge of restraint, right? And that yes, it does. What That's exactly right. What about exactly swaddling, right. though? People all, you know, my Sienna loved to be swaddled or so. I thought and even in, you know, in the child care center where she was, she was swaddled and then put in the swing and would have the lullabies. It was Clicho lullabies. Marilyn used to sing to her. They couldn't get her to settle down for afternoon sleeps swaddled her with love, not not in any kind of frustrated way, because she cried and cried and cried, and then put her in this swing and sang lullabies to her. And that my perception was always that that swaddling, that arms by the side, was part of what, what helped calm her, the pressure. So uh, swaddling uh, is exactly what you just described. And what we're looking at when we, um, when we uh, restrain the baby is when the baby doesn't want to be restrained. Okay. Uh, and so the typical thing is that um, the baby uh, is trying to move their limbs to release extra energy. And, um, and so what we're doing when we restrain the, the infant in this case is preventing a, a natural, an automatic self-regulating mechanism. We're interfering with it. And what happens with swaddling is that, uh, first of all, you want to soothe the baby as you're swaddling it. So you are uh, regulating the baby and then the swaddling keeps the baby regulated uh, and you're reducing through the swaddling, you're reducing the amount of energy, the amount of stresses that are, um, you know, assaulting the newborn. Um, so the the point I wanted to make about the interbrain is that, uh, so, you know, back in the 90s, I was doing a lot of work with um, uh, early childhood uh, providers. And there was a common thought at the time that um, what had to, what they were doing was teaching uh, caregivers, especially young ones, how to read the signs of what the baby was 
what the baby was experiencing and then what to do. Um, uh, like if it, what are the signs that my baby is hungry and then to feed the baby. So it was seen as a very blue brain, a very cognitive phenomenon. But if the interbrain theory was correct, then there was a different issue going on and what it meant. And I am leading up to Susan's larger question. If the interbrain theory was correct, what it meant was that for some reason, the caregiver wasn't having these sensations. Was it that something was blocking this communication, this brain to brain communication? And so the interesting question was, why isn't, so you understand that what we're looking at here is actually feeling what the baby is feeling. So why, why does a caregiver not feel if this is such a, if this is such a, a, a basic biological aspect of human functioning that we have this brain to brain hookup, then why is it that some caregivers didn't have these experiences, had something broken. Um, and if that was the case, um, well, it's not the case. <laughs> I won't go into that. Okay, so, so that struck me as a really, really interesting question. What would turn off or block the interbrain? And the answer was pretty clear. And the answer was excessive stress will block the interbrain or excessive dopamine will block the interbrain. And what happens is we go through a, a sort of neural shift where we stop feeling what the baby is feeling. And so some of the greatest research back in this period of the early 90s was research showing that if you could reduce the mom's stress, that she naturally became attuned to what the baby was feeling. Uh, Beatrice Beebe was the one who did the most important research on this, showing us the effects of excessive stress on attunement and the effects of reducing stress on restoring what's called attunement. So being in this you know, I, I love the term attunement, which reminds us of the tuning fork. Now, Susan's next part of the question is, well, is this just a, is this just about uh, caregivers and babies? But the example she gave at the outset was um, her attunement, which was without consciousness. It was just a natural attunement to her child, to her teen, her, her daughter's 14, to her 14 year olds, um, anxiety, anger, whatever it was, and the effects that it has on us. So the point she was making, the point you are making, is that the interbrain stays with us. So we're always going to have an interbrain connection with our kids. But then Susan introduced yet another factor. Well, is it just with our kids? Is this something about the parent-child uh, uh, connection 
that stays with us or is it with others? And the answer is yes, it's with others. So we now know, uh, and then we have all kinds of examples of uh, interbrain connection, which is very rapid, say in crowds. So an emotion sweeps through a crowd. It's almost instantaneously. We meet somebody and we have this immediate awareness at some level of what they're feeling, what they feel towards us and so on. Uh, and maybe at some point we can talk about neuroception, not today. Okay, now, having said all that, uh, I should just mention, um, in the last few years, there has been the most extraordinary research uh, dating back to about 2018, showing that we can, for example, uh, experiments showing that we can identify what someone is feeling simply through touch. And so in these experiments, these were done in uh, the Dutch experiments are the most famous ones. Um, they were uh, people that didn't know each other. And um, so one person was said, to touch the other, uh, conveying that they were angry or conveying that they, they were happy or conveying that um, they were frightened or surprised. And it was quite remarkable how we how the other subject could correctly identify the emotion in question. So this is a classic interbrain experiment. And we have a lot of research now over the last decade on the role of facial expressions, vocalizations, and now touch in what is essentially interbrain connections. So it really raises a very interesting question. What it means is that um, it means that we can actually feel, we feel something very similar to what someone else is feeling. But not always. Um, and in fact, we now know that there are people that don't feel anything at all um, and um, can do uh, horrible things to someone else. And we talked about this in my October webinar. Um, and not feel any sense of remorse, not feel anything about what the other person is experiencing, what has shut down in them. And on the other hand, we have sociopaths who have incredible interbrain uh, awareness and use it to manipulate. Um, so the story that's unfolding is that what we want to know is what stops us? What blocks our interbrain with others? What, what restores our interbrain communication, even with a stranger? And I thought that Susan did a wonderful job explaining exactly what the answer to that is. Because in her story, and the reason I pushed her at the end, was she returned to sympathetic, parasympathetic balance. 
And when we are in balance, when we are in homeostasis, nothing's blocking the parts of the brain that vibrate. Nothing's blocking. Um, and we can even go further. We can even talk about which parts of the brain. And so what happens is we become aware uh, because the factor that causes us not to be aware has been reduced. So what's the factor? And the factor is stress. The factor is excessive stress. So when I see examples of, I want to give two examples, but maybe I should just pause and then I'll give my last two examples and that'll wrap it up. Okay. So, so much in there. If you're interested in the webinar, Stuart mentioned you know, reframing and really having a look at evil, hard topic, but self-reg is a hopeful path forward to understanding it more. And there will be a, um, a chronicle, a printed chronicle at, at some point uh, in, in 2022. So in 2023, 2023. Yeah, absolutely. We're at the end of 2022 here. So a couple of things that, that really um, jumped out at me, Stuart is um, you know, realizing, well, first of all, that this being in balance doesn't mean we're a hundred percent perfect. Like I like, we, often, <laughs> we sometimes talk about the uh, window of tolerance, which is a terrific model for, for it, it actually helps us understand why self-reg makes a difference in our life. My window of tolerance most of the time is fairly That's large because term. I have this, this stra strategies. You can't just get it from, from one webinar or, you know, you have to go deeper into the learning and it's not all head knowledge. You're beginning to apply it and practice it, which is what, uh, what we do in, in our online courses, but you can certainly get the gist of it, but you, we get a bigger window of tolerance, which means I can handle more stuff most of the time, you know, but a lot of the, the, the kids that were the most challenged with teenagers right now, my, my daughter most of the time is pretty good, but we have moments where her window of tolerance is this big. Everything's great until it's not, you know, and, and so it, it can be really, really helpful when we begin to think about that, that balance. So that was just one thing I wanted to say. So it's not about getting perfect and you've, you know, you've run and you've eaten good food and gotten good sleep and, you know, it just doesn't like life is messier than that. Right. But it, it the other thing I just wanted to say is uh, I, I guess it's a bit of a question, Stuart, but you know, when we're thinking about these interbrain disconnections, right? You know, that synchrony actually feels really good. And I'm convinced, many self-breakers are convinced you don't just have to be in the same room. I feel that with you sometimes, Stuart. I yeah, no, for, sure. Team, for sure. People I've never met. Yeah, for you, sure. You can build it in different kind of ways, right? Yeah, you know, so my mom used to, when I would call her, I lived all over the place in Italy and I would call her and it, I always found it really funny because she would pick up the phone. This was the old days when you had no idea who was calling, right? So late nineties, early two thousands. And she would play this bell, which I have here. My mom passed away a few years ago and it was it the song. It played amazing grace. It was a bell that I gave her years ago. Sienna's middle name is grace or one of her middle names. And it's, and I gave it to her years ago because she, I remember she always sang when she was, when she was happy, I could tell, when she was balanced enough, she sang and sang and sang, and that was a song she would sing. So she'd pick up this bell, and I always wondered how many strangers, you know, would would hear the phone answer and, uh, you know, the amazing grace. And instantly there was that connection because, you know, it just, I don't know, you just feel. It's not just that I know she's thinking of me. So one of the things that I'm, I'm very aware of in myself, so this is my question, because um, uh, I guess it's a pro-social stress. When I don't feel connected to others, so... I'm doing a talk tomorrow morning down in Niagara. 
and live in an audience with people, not just on Zoom. Zoom is hard because I can't always see where other people are. But also yesterday with Sienna, you know, I'm, I'm having to go through a bit of grieving at the teenagers, uh, a, a bit of the empty nest earlier than I had been th- kind of thinking of, even though I do this work, uh, because I don't always feel that connection like I used to. I'm still getting it a lot and very thankful for it and hopeful and all that. But it, it is, it's, it's, it, is it an anxiety? Because it creates this discomfort in me. And when, I, when I'm in a position that I can do something about it, uh, like at an event where I notice I've lost people, <laughs> I get them to move or whatever, you know, and, and then I can, I quell my own anxiety, it actually feels better. But it, it helps, it helps sort of, it, it helps with those connections. Uh, but sometimes like that discomfort of when, you know, of last night of that, <laughs> until she came a couple hours later and said, really, sorry, mom, for a few things she said, and so on. It, it's, it's uncomfortable. And it's a discomfort. It's an urge, I love the point. you know, and so it, there's a connection there somewhere, because sometimes we can't make that link up we want to we keep trying <laughs> you know we try, kind of find the ways um but sometimes it's just not there so uh let's just cash that out it's a great point um so in this example um uh sienna sienna's interbrain connection was attenuated it was reduced because of the stress that she was under and Susan gave us um, Susan gave us uh, a pretty good, a pretty vivid glimpse of just how stressed uh, Sienna was when she walked in the door. And as I just said a second ago, so we now know that stress uh, stress reduces our awareness of the other's interbrain, of the others, what the other's feeling. Uh, we become, we get locked into ourselves. But Susan made a very interesting point. Um, it's stressful for us to feel that the other is not there. It is stressful for us to feel that that strong interbrain connection that we take for granted um, is missing or is um, is um, reduced. But there's another point. And um, this, this is actually the last point I wanted to make today. A lot of times we misconstrue our own sensations. Um, so in this case, the resonance was actually pretty strong. The resonance between Susan and her daughter was quite strong. Um, and so what's happening is that... Um, we are she what susan was actually feeling um the same neurons were 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 buzzing around in susan um and the problem was that it was six minutes and counting and so um susan didn't have the luxury of of co-regulating didn't have the luxury of you know the hand on the shoulder or the soft eyes and um, and so there's a <clears throat> a bunch of things swirling around now. Um, you know, uh, this um, this uh, pressure cook classroom uh, series is is pretty demanding on Susan. It's a you know I don't know if if you can uh, identify with this, but you know trying to rein in 50 people it's on on Zoom. It's not easy. Um, and you got to be on the top of your game. And now on top of this, 
you've got this internal, um, uh, I like the word that Susan used. So we'll say anxiety, because that that's such a nebulous term, uh, so we don't have to define it. But there's an awful lot that's going on. And now what Susan had to do was uh, narrow her focus, block out, uh, literally block out the interbrain here so that she could uh, commit to the job. The interesting part of all this is sometimes um, we don't feel anything because of excessive stress, but sometimes we feel stuff and we get it wrong. We, 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 um, and so yesterday morning, and I'm going to talk about this at some length in, in February, um, uh, I woke up and I was, and I said to my wife, I don't care what happens in the, I don't care what happens in the U S I don't care what Republicans do. And I was going, and what had really happened was I'd had a very bad night. And so it was hard for me to get focused on work. And my, my midbrain was not a happy midbrain <laughs> and, and it was coloring, uh, my, it was coloring my, my, my mood. It was coloring what I said. I could have stayed stuck in that. And so the interbrain is a really, it's a really interesting, but it's a really complicated, um, uh, uh, phenomenon. Um, we are so connected with other people, even with strangers. And we may be connected in a way that makes us really anxious. Um, and their own anxiety is, and so it makes us angry or it makes us, it makes us want to run away or it makes us. And so what we're looking at um, with the interbrain, and this is the reason why Susan asked her last question. We're not just looking at, um, we're not just looking at something that goes on in the, in the first four or six months of life. This is a fact of our species. We are connected with each other. And um, if there's no connection at all, that's a bad sign. That's a sign of excessive stress, possibly mental illness. It's, this, is, this is worrying. But so much of our life is about these feelings that we're getting from each other that maybe we don't like and maybe we don't understand. And so what we want to do, um, what we want to take away from today is that, you know, you're coming up to Christmas and, and you're going to be meeting with relatives that you don't see very much. And it's a supercharged, super stressful period, no matter how you cut it. And what we want to do is we want to take a deep breath. Get back into get back into uh, balance, so that the messages that my interbrain is sending is one of calmness, one of one of one of soothing. So to get there, to be able to have a wonderful holiday, I have to be in that state where I can through self reg I can modulate 
the messages that I'm sending. And that was the final point that I took away from Susan's story, because what she did, it was a fascinating story. It was a fa it was fascinating that the last 30 minutes of the talk, her heart rate had come down. And that was a, that was a signal that she was in calm. And all I could think when Susan told that part of the story was, oh my, what a wonderful message she gave to the 50 people that were on that talk. So whatever it was, whatever the points uh, were that she covered, that calmness that radiated that was shown in her heart rate, that was the message that everybody took home yesterday after your, after your Zoom session. So neat. I'm going to just say one thing and let you have the very final word. And That was my final word. <laughs> yeah, but I just got to say one more thing. And, and you know, so it's interesting because I wasn't trying to reel folks in. I, I, no, I no, no, no. This great, was not a... I feel a great deal of um, responsibility to give people meaningful experiences, you know, and to try to really build those connections. For those of you trying to figure out how to do it in your own lives, uh, what Stuart just said about focusing on your own states is a really important thing. And some of it is accepting some people, you know, if you're doing stuff with your family or whatever in, in your, in your staff room uh, and, and that those connections don't come easy. We tend to always go to thinking, Oh, I've got to make connections with words or, <laughs> or you know, shared, shared gaze. That's and terrific. Actually, sometimes that's the very opposite you need. It, it's, a, a, a laugh together, you know, a moment. So they can be done in un, unhealthy ways. Gossip threads spreads throughout a staff room, for example, sign of a lot of stress. But it actually is also a connection between people. This sort of shared sort of state, right? So so just really, fo if we're focusing on your, you know, and begin to think about, okay, what's my state and how can I stay in enough balance? Another, another thing that can really work is uh, that Stuart does masterfully. I don't, I think it's intentional, but he just does it. Uh, he'll ask a well-placed question and do a whole lot of listening, you know, and and that can actually really, really help with bridging. Uh, not everybody wants to talk, but that that is one thing that, that can also work. And you're always trying to think of how how to strengthen these connections. It's like a little a neural network if you're in a classroom or whatever. Not everybody is tapped in, but how can I bring more and more people tapped in? And I just want to say this one thing about self-reg, just one more thing, uh, just one point that I don't want to miss uh, because any of you Googling the interbrain will go and find Digby Tantum's 2018 book. We did a book club on it and it actually got self-regulars in a, a bit of an uproar. <laughs> not to say there's not some good content in there, but but not everything we talk about or Stuart brings into self-reg, just because he mentions uh, Gould doesn't mean all things Gould. You know? <laughs> and many that he that he focuses on, uh, uh, Ledoux and anxiety, for example, there's some of it and then he, you know, he, he shapes things. So we always think critically, we invite that. And if you're going to read uh, Tantum, you know, you could also read Gould or you could read Shore, uh, but read the, which book was it? The earlier one? 90, um, the ninth, the one from, from, from the past that he, that he originally did. That was, that was a really important one for Stuart. Uh, we're way more hopeful. So, you know, feel yeah, free to buy, you to buy any book you want, but I just wanted to sort of frame that for you. So final word is, is yours, Stuart. Uh, where do you want to leave people on the inner brain and uh, where do you want to go next? Have you thought about that? Um, so, uh, two questions there. So, uh, where I want to go next, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm tempted to look at the stories that we tell ourselves. Okay. 
Um, and final word, um, I loved what Susan just said, and that was what I was trying to uh, emphasize today, the multimodality of the interbrain. And if you want a real, a real lesson in the interbrain, after this talk, go to the self-reg, uh, to the TMC website, which is self-reg.ca, and listen, download the song that Rafi wrote, the self-reg song. Yeah. Um, uh, and Rafi, um, there's no better example of how the human voice can be incredibly, we can connect uh, with this guy, uh, this Armenian-Canadian uh, magician whose voice um, immediately resonates with all ages. Changes a room, and it's as hard, it's everything. So thank you hard, very much. I want to say thank you to Adam Kemp, our producer, director, videographer. <laughs> He's an all-in-one all package. And thank you for joining us uh, for this episode of The Self-Reg Show. Please do leave your comments, your questions for us. Uh, share this uh, with anyone you think that might be interested in learning uh, a little bit of the self-reg, uh, what it is, how it works, and how we apply it and explore it through stories. And thanks to you, Stuart Shanker. Uh, we'll see you next time, everyone. Okay, that was fun. <laughs>